Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of salvation. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your kingdom and the possibility of coming into your holy and beautiful and life-giving kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we would be renewed today as your sons and daughters in this great royal household and that we would be um, witnesses to you and your ways, which are so different in the world. I pray this in your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Today is the last day of the year. You probably didn't know that, did you? Um, it's not according to the solar cal- calendar that we observe, but according to the church calendar. So it's called Christ the King. It's the very last Sunday in the liturgical year because the church always starts its liturgical year in Advent. Advent starts next Sunday. That's our first Sunday of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to the celebration of our Lord's birth, Nativity. Um, Christ the King is the culmination of an entire year's worth of remembrances of everything that the Lord came to accomplish, which is complete. And um, there's still the coming of his kingdom at the end, which we'll begin to anticipate again starting next week because Advent is really, it's not only the remembrance of that time when Mary was pregnant, anticipating the birth, it's also um, really it's entering into the, the season that the church is in, as a matter of fact, in history right now. We're right now between that time when our Lord has ascended, the Spirit has come so that we can continue and we can continue in power and in hope, and, uh, but we're still waiting for that ultimate culmination of the coming of the kingdom, the fulfillment of that at the end of the age when he descends in power and in glory and brings down with him the reality of that holy Jerusalem from above and uh, where everything is actually in the holy of holies, right? Right now, we're, we're not in that place. Somewhere in our heart, as we commune with the Lord in the spirit, we can be, actually. But we're not in our new bodies, we're not in our resurrection body yet, and that kingdom has not yet come. But we have the first fruits. And so the early church um, celebrates this idea of kingdom. And I was, um, I was, I don't know why I was surprised. I shouldn't be because I've been doing this for long enough. I was, for some reason it hit me as kind of odd that we would have this reading from the, our Lord's Passion today. Because I just, I automatically think of, of kingdom in much more of that kind of glorious sense, right? The, the, like the shining royal one who comes in and everybody kind of bows, right? And that's typically how I think of it. And, and really that's how the Israelites thought of it too. That's why this was so confusing for them when Jesus came and he showed a different way of being in earth, in this mortal existence, which led up to his death. That's a different way of establishing a kingdom. For them, it was not supposed to be like that. That's not what they expected. So, but I should know better, right? At this point, I should actually know that the way that his kingdom is showing itself is through the cross. And um, so as I, as I was preparing the, for the sermon, I was um, reminded through a couple different readings of the way the early church thought of, thought of the cross and our Lord's victory on the cross. And we have a little bit of a picture of that there. I don't know if you all can see that, but that's, that's the, it's really sort of the risen Lord, but it's also Christ the King, all right? Because so, he's, he's there very much in majesty. A lot of times when we see a crucifix, we see our Lord with his eyes closed, Uh, at that moment of death or perhaps in agony, dying. Um, And 
that is an important remembrance. I mean, Paul talks about that aspect of the cross, right? I remember his death that I may carry his life, his resurrection within my body. I carry his, I'm sorry, I carry his, his death in my body that I might al- also manifest his resurrection life. So there's, there's both, but the way the early church saw it was the cross had a completely different sense for them. And it was, it was um, in the light of his victory that they saw the cross now. They began to understand something about the kingdom that we even forget now. That the way of the kingdom and the glory of God on the earth, in this difficult, suffering, troubling, ultimately dying existence, the kingdom shows itself in a different way and we need it to because we have an existence that's often troubled and it is bounded by death Um, which is the curse that we received in Adam and Eve in which many of us, because of our own sins and our own lives, continue to earn the right to be condemned to death. And so we needed a savior who enters into that somehow. And Jesus does that. We see this tying together of, um, and by the way, when the early church thought of the cross, they actually, and and when when Paul was preaching, like I determined to know just Christ and him crucified. And and that was the one thing that he wanted to to preach. And it wasn't in like strength and great rhetorical power and felt he felt weak, and he was. Wasn't known to be a great preacher apparently. But he determined to know that and to preach Christ and him crucified and we proclaim his death until he comes. But within that is very much a tying together of the things that I've been talking about, both his victory over death through the, resur- through the cross, but also the resurrection. Not only that though, they tied it in with his ascension as well. So you can even see that connoted there because when Jesus rises, he rises in this form. They also tied it in with his intercessions for us in the heavenlies where he's interceding for us to receive the Holy Spirit by whom we can enter into the kingdom within our own hearts as well and enter into his way of living out the kingdom in our lives, which is impossible apart from God. That's why he wanted to send the Spirit. So when they thought of the cross and when Paul thought of preaching preaching Christ and him crucified, contained within that was all of us. Everything. The kingdom was inclusive of all of it. And so today I felt like, well, man, maybe there's some way that we could enter into some of that comprehensiveness by the Lord's grace. Jesus, in, in the earlier part of Luke, when he's just beginning to demonstrate the kingdom, he'd already been doing a lot of healing and a good bit of teaching. So it's even after the Sermon on the Mount, which is really impossible, right? He's basically saying you... Um, you have to be not only keeping the external commandments, but your heart has to be completely clear of all the temptations and inclinations to sin too. Otherwise, you've basically earned the right. So if you're lusting in your heart, you know, it's as good as adultery, so to speak, right? And there's this, this intensity to his teaching about, well, what does it look like to be in the kingdom? It's very, very demanding. But, you know, folks are really taken with it because it's, he's speaking with such an authority It's a connotation of of incredible authority. And that's an important thing to notice too when we think about kingdom because when we think about a kingdom, we we typically think of like a constitutional monarchy like England, right? Maybe it's kind of cool and fun to to look at the royals. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) But, But they really don't have the ability to say something and have it become law. They don't have that anymore. 
But with Christ, it is still the case that his words, when they're spoken, are meant to be the words by which we live life and the words by which we have life. And he even says, you know, if you keep my words, you are mine. But the, the demand of a lot of his words are so difficult. I mean, even the idea of like, my goodness, love your enemies. I, I, can, I can think like, I even have a hard enough time loving my family. <laughs> but love your enemies. That's part of what it looks like. And, and he says, you know, if you do love your enemies, then you're like God, because God is, is kind and merciful even to those people who are, you know, hateful and mean and spiteful. He's, that's how he is. And if you do love your enemies, then you're, you're actually demonstrating that you're, what he says, the sons of the Most High. You're actually participating in that kingdom as a family member then. If you actually are able to do that, well, are you able, I'm not able to do that. I, I continually discover that I'm not able to do that. But it would be great if I could, because if I did, the outpouring of the gifts of God would be amazing, right? There's something about this connection between being wide open, so wide open that you love your enemies that you can actually be so full of the Spirit that you, you're, you're, it's like pouring out. It's, shake, it's like so in you. It's like spreading out from you. Who, who loved their enemies like this? It's just one person. It's Jesus like right before the passage that we read, it says of Jesus that he's, he's on the cross and he's praying for all of us, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's pouring out unbelievable love even towards his enemies. And that distinguishes the kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. That's different. Also when he's talking to um, early on in, in, the, in the gospel, it starts, to, it starts to play these two sides of both the, the, the glory of God coming in through the kingdom in Jesus and his incarnation, but also his suffering and death, which is kind of disorienting. Like if you remember when he's, when he's born, there's this incredible revelation from the heavens, like the angels come in and, and there's glory to God in the highest and it's, it's amazing and, and Mary remembers these things and she ponders them in her heart. And that's how Luke knows about this. And so he shares that with us at the beginning of this gospel. But then eight days later, he's in the temple and, and Simeon is praising the Lord for the glory of the Israelites and the light of the Gentiles that he sees in Jesus' face. He's so grateful for that. But then he also says he's gonna be a sign of contradiction upon which many will rise and many will fall. Or maybe I think many will fall and many will rise. It's an interesting juxtaposition of both the glory that he's seeing there, but also he's foretelling in a way that passion that the Lord's gonna experience on the cross. And even how it affects us, like Mary is a stand-in for us, her own heart's gonna be pierced. And something happens through our hearts when we, we behold him on the cross. So there's that connection there. And then, then you have something very sim similar a little bit later with, with Peter. He's, he's saying you are the Christ, the, son, the, the, the living one, the Messiah. And um, Jesus commends him for that. I think it's in Matthew, it says, you, you know, because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. The spirit reveals that to you. And actually that's the way we really know Jesus as God is through the spirit. It's not through flesh and blood. But 
It's right after that in Luke's gospel. Um, actually, Peter doesn't, doesn't, um, doesn't take Jesus to task for his task because right after Peter makes his declaration, you are the Christ, then Jesus says, here's what that means. Here's what it means for me to be the Messiah. It means that I'm going to be betrayed, handed over, suffered, suffer and die, and then rise again three days later. And um, immediately after that, he says, now you also need to take up your cross and follow me. And, and if, if you are ashamed of me when I come in glory, then I, I, I'm ashamed of you. But if, if we're not... If we're not there with Jesus somehow in the cross, if we're not there really, like even in our existence, I think what he's saying there is like, take up your cross and follow me. There is a way in which the suffering that we live, and we will just have suffering. It's part of the nature of our condition. And it does get complete at the time of our death. And that's a sorrowful reality. It's the reality of the fall. But what Jesus is saying is that I will if you enter into the kingdom understanding the way here and you embrace it and you speak to it, you bear witness to it, not just in words, not just in thoughts, you're not just submitting to an ideology, you're actually submitting to it with your entire life, then I will bring you into the same glory. Now, again, it still seems impossible, doesn't it? It doesn't, doesn't feel a whole lot better to see that there's a consistency to this, this kingdom. It contains both glory and difficulty. That doesn't help me a lot yet. <laughs> but there is a great deal of help. And you see that beginning um, to really be revealed in our passage today. Where Jesus is mockingly held up as the king of the Jews with an inscription over the cross. He's admitted to Pilate that he is the king of the Jews. And then the Romans decide to put that up there mockingly. And he um, is there suffering. And even the thief on one side starts to mock him and then the thief on the other side has a different response. I think that's where we begin to see the possibility of entering in to the kingdom. And the way that we enter into it is the way of the good thief. I mean, the truth is that we are condemned to death. The truth is that we have suffering in life. Um, sometimes that suffering is just by virtue of, of being mortal and being vulnerable, and sometimes it's because of our sin. And it ends in death. And so the, I think of the two thieves as really the two ways that we can respond to the Lord, is to say, I think this is the trouble we often enter into, is that I'm not willing to go with you, God, as according to your kingdom ways, because I'm suffering. I thought that if I became a Christian and followed you, that things would be better. And right now, I, I don't feel that. I, I just got a terrible diagnosis. Or my child is wandering away from the Lord. And I'm suffering. And I don't feel the blessings of this kingdom. I thought this was a good kingdom rule that you were bringing. And so a lot of times we're like, I, you know, can, can you help me? It's almost like we're, we're saying the same thing that the bad thief was saying. Is that, you know, you, I, you couldn't help yourself. Maybe that's why you can't help me. Because if you were really a good king, you would help me. But that's not how Jesus deals with the trouble of our existence. He deals with it through entering into it. He becomes present to it. 
He goes right into the center of it. He doesn't deny the reality of our condition. He transforms it from within. It becomes a transfiguration. And we see that, by the way, foretold. The last, um, you know, um, sort of preview of this dual nature of the kingdom I've been talking about. Eight days later, later, after he talks about his death and resurrection, eight days later is the transfiguration. And there's this light that comes in when Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus, which is his suffering and dying, his departure to establish a new kingdom covenant. And that's transfiguring light to those three disciples. And so in retrospect now, especially in the spirit, the church begins to realize this this really is the kingdom. And we don't have to have this response like, you know, if if life doesn't get better under this king, he's not a good king and I'm going to wait for another one. No, we can actually, within the troubling existence that we have, whether we've brought it on ourselves through sin or it's, it's happened to us because of just being born with bad genes, I don't, whatever, he can enter into it and begin to transform it. Jesus says to this humble thief who shares the same conviction that we have of death, I should say, because hopefully none of us will actually be crucified on an actual cross. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What is paradise? the, The Jews would have understood that to be a kingdom. The temple itself was also thought of as a palace. And um, in the Old Testament passage, in fact, we have this, this reference to, um, you know, the righteous king, the branch of David. And also there was this understanding that Melchizedek was himself considered king of righteousness. And Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, says that Jesus entering into the real temple, not the, not the earthly one, that's just a copy, but entering into the real temple is like Melchizedek. He's, he's eternally the high priest, but he's also the king of righteousness and the Lord of lords. And so Jesus is taking him into this garden temple that Adam and Eve lost that's not made with human hands, and he's taking that one thief in there with him that day upon his dying, and it's the promise held out to all of us. But there's also a promise held out to us as we're continuing in the difficulty of life. We don't just have to wait to the moment of departure, right? for that to be true for us. We can actually experience some of that light now, even as the disciples did. When they went up to the mountain to pray, they saw the the Lord's light revealed. And we know that this is the consistent witness of disciples throughout the centuries, even Paul himself. When he went into, initially it was completely God's doing, right? And God reveals his magnificent light, his glorious light, the exalted light of Jesus. Having already ascended, he reveals himself to Paul in a shining way. And Paul continues again and again to pray that we would have our eyes open to that same reality, that we could enter into that same reality. The, uh, I think the way that I would recommend maybe today we enter into it is um, sort of inspired by a, another understanding of the cross, which is related to a passage in Ezekiel. It's kind of an obscure passage where the Israelites have, no, that didn't work. The Israelites have, um, they've really, they've fallen into idolatry, okay? And they have, they've blasphemed the Lord. 
There's abominations going on in the temple. There's actually idolatry. But there's also a tremendous amount of sin. And Paul and the New Testament writers consistently labels sin, particularly when it relates to things like sexual immorality and all kinds of appetites that we indulge in excessively, but also in bitterness and in disunity and all those things. And and that's exactly what's happening in, in Ezekiel's time. The Israelites are no longer worshiping God and they're no longer loyal subjects in his kingdom. And they're going to be destroyed. That's the, that's the word that the prophet is receiving from the Lord. And, um, and, and yet the, the Lord says to this one figure, sort of angelic figure, is in white linen, but I want you to go and mark everyone who is not blasphemed and also who is mourning these abominations, those who are sorrowful over these sins, the sins of their own country. You know, they, they have entered into, in some way, the Lord's own sorrow over that, the way that Jesus enters into our sorrow by identifying with our sin on the cross. They've entered into that sorrow, and they're sad for all of this departure from holy, holiness. They're sad for the betrayals of, of loyalty that should have been in place as subjects of the kingdom of the one true God, and they're sad for it. In other words, they're repentant, and they're marked with Actually, it's a cross. It's the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which at that time would have been actually in the form of a cross. And the early church picked up on that. I can't remember which, which church father kind of was, began to track with that, but it was, that's, a, that's actually a cross. What, oh my goodness, that's a cross. Did you see that? That's the Old Testament. It's amazing how often the Old Testament seems to predict what actually is fulfilled by Jesus. Paul says that again and again, by the way. He, he, even when he says, you know, it was according to the scriptures that he had to die. It was also according to the scriptures that he rose again. And it's just, it's the same thing that happens again and again. Jesus is saying, I, I pr- this was in the scriptures. Didn't you understand? All of this is in the scriptures. And it's good news. It's actually good news. It's gospel, right? And so we see this, this marking with the sign of a cross. And these are the ones who are preserved. These are the ones who are redeemed. What's really interesting is that um, that T or that, that last letter in the Hebrew alphabet um, is, begins with the, the same letter that they, they use for prayer, but also the same letter for a word that they use for repentance, which kind of means return to the sources. So they're, they're marking themselves with a, a letter that, that can evoke these images of coming back to God, of repentance. And of, the, of, of being with God, dwelling with him in the temple, which is a house of prayer, through prayer. And so I was thinking about that, that kind of that incredible image of the cross. And uh, the early church saw that cross as being all permeating, permeating everything. In fact, they picked up on the passage of, wait, we didn't read that passage today, but there's Ephesians 3. Paul's praying for the church that, that from within, through Jesus' presence within, that we would perceive the height and the depth and the breadth, right? So think about that. The height, the height, vertical, and, and, and the depth, and then the, the breadth is kind of like this, but it's also, it's three-dimensional of, of the glory of God, that, that this fullness that, that we would come into us the way it, he had experienced, but that that light would come in to us and scatter the darkness, 
that we be renewed in our real domain, having been transferred from darkness into light is our passage from Colossians today. You know, he wants us to be renewed in that. But the early church picked up on that. And so I thought of that, that idea of the cross. Man, it's, it's all permeating, but it means the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. So how could we receive that? Maybe a practical way we could receive that. And so here I am finally. Maybe here's how we can participate a little bit. Um, the first thing I think of when I think of a kingdom is this idea that, well, we're, we're under authority, right? We're submitting to one who has the authority to give us life, and his words are meant to be our law. And so to the extent that we haven't, especially, I think we need to return to him. But there's... There's a body posture that goes with that, right? Like, we're gonna, we're gonna kneel, we're going to make our confession, and in many ways, what that is is a sign of our submission. We're bowing our heads before the Lord. And um, we're asking for his renewal through the cross at that point. So I think even bowing today is a way that we begin to enter back into it. I also think of, like, the, the picture of prayer in, in many of the early um, uh, church not early church, this is probably medieval era, was um, people praying like this. You guys have seen this, right? In fact, that's, that's the way I was raised, like that's what prayer was supposed to look like when I was a kid, sort of like this or like this. And this is the, the, um, the posture with hands and arms that a subject who was pledging fealty to a king would take in um, somewhere in the Middle Ages, I think it was. So they would come to that king and they would say, I'm pledging my fealty, my loyalty to you. And then the king would take his hands and wrap them around that person's hands. So everything in that person's care, which is their little kingdom, became now part of God's greater kingdom, if you think of that king as representing Jesus. So in some ways, too, I think if, if you wanted to pray today and you're saying, Lord, I know there's ways that I've been running my life, not according to your laws, but my own. And my kingdom has been out here somewhere and I'm going to bring it right back in to you. And I want your ways to be my ways. But Lord, it's impossible for me, but I submit myself once again to you. When Paul and Peter come back to the Lord, I'm sorry, when Peter comes back to the Lord after after the Lord is risen, and all the disciples come back to the Lord. He says, I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna send to the Father at the right hand of the Father, and I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit. And I want you to wait for me till he comes in glory. When Jesus is doing that, what he's doing is he's making us whole. He's actually sending his Spirit to clothe us that's a picture of atonement. To be clothed with glory is a picture of being made one with God again, at one minute. And so when the Spirit comes, he's actually clothing us back in power. He's making us people who can actually pray. He's taking our bodies and making them once again a holy temple, a place, a palace even for the king. So when we come to our confession today, Maybe some of these things will come to mind. I don't know what ways you might have a sense from the Lord that you've wandered off and you need to bring back into the Lord. What ways you want to receive the cleansing and the at gift that he brings. But when his 
blood is poured out and the spirit is poured out, he's giving us that gift. And that's available for us today once again. Those frightened disciples became faithful disciples even to death afterwards. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would be faithful subjects today, we'd be renewed in that reality. We pray, Lord, that we would receive all the benefits of the cross, that it would be all permeating in our lives, and that your way of rulership would become the rule that holds sway in our hearts. Lord, um, the depth of our need is huge, and you have taken care of that need. You have plumbed the depths. You have risen to the heights, Lord. You have uh, brought your kingdom into every dimension of existence, and your glory fills the earth, Lord. Lord, may it fill every pocket of our lives with your light and with your rule. Lord, we want to love you with our whole hearts and our minds and our strength, and we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. We even, Lord, we would ask if we could be so bold to love those who have hurt us, who are our enemies, so to speak. We pray that your spirit would come and renew us with a heart that's open to love you and to love our neighbors and to love our enemies. You are gracious. You are the lover of our souls. You want to root us and ground us in this love and enable us to live out your kingdom ways. So we entrust ourselves to you just the way Jesus entrusted himself to you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.